1: Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. <laughs> Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast.
0: Hey, hey, Brave Makers. This is Tony Gappestone.
2: And I'm Rebecca Mosa. And we are here for our...
0: 50th episode. Woo! Number 50 of the Brave Maker podcast. Crazy. I cool. don't know
2: if you remember when we were first doing this and we were on like number five or six. I'm like, really? <laughs> five or six? <laughs> five or That's six amazing. felt great. Yeah. And you
0: were in Spain doing some of these. Remember that?
2: Yeah. we A lot has changed. A lot has happened in the progression of this uh, podcast.
0: Yeah. So a we, lot has gone on. So we are... Gosh, we're hitting our, we're not even at two years as a Brave Maker organization yet, but we are going, we're a couple months away now from our second annual Film Fest. We have been rolling right along with our monthly film screenings. And just a side note, our next one is March 30th. We have the film by Danish Renzu called The Illegal, and it stars Suraj Sharma, Super cool. He was in Life of Pi by Ang Lee. That was his very first role. He auditioned and got the role after going with his brother to auditions. Like I think thousands of kids auditioned and he got a major lead role in an Ang Lee film, which is pretty cool. And that shot him out into stardom. So he's going to come. He'll be here from New York and the director will be here from LA. And we're going to chat about the whole film is about following your dreams, but it's also about being an immigrant and what it looks like to live in America and be undocumented, and have to compromise to support your family when things get tough. So come check that out. We're also partnering with Casa Indian that night, which is a local restaurant. And Anamika, who is one of the owners, is going to come sit on the panel with us, which is pretty cool.
2: Nice. Really cool.
0: So besides um, almost hitting two years, as you see, uh, as I look at Rebecca here, she's got her hand on her, Mm -hmm. her baby,
2: on my ribs. <laughs> <laughs> which is,
0: the baby's still on Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not for long. Four more weeks, five more weeks.
2: Yeah, coming right along, and he's growing, so space is getting tight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we're looking forward to welcome uh, baby Brave Maker Luca here, which, by the way, we have a few Brave Maker onesies left, if anyone would like to purchase one just let us know (laughs) email me at tony at (laughs) bravemaker.com they're limited edition yeah a couple
2: (laughs) people mentioned it actually where did you get that i'm like tony just gave it to me is
0: that fun yeah Yeah. so we only have four more left so we sent one to lydia Isnanto and her husband doug who just had a baby did they get it yet they they did yeah i I think it might be too big (laughs) because she put it next to him (laughs) 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 i think she's waiting because it's like zero to three months i think he was on the smaller size i don't know yeah Okay, so let's talk about episode 50. Who do we have here?
2: We have humorist Henry Alford brought to us by Irving, who is one of our correspondents. You've heard other episodes from him. And, yeah, I was just checking out his website, Tony sent to me. Seems like a funny guy. I liked also that I think it was on his book description where he said a professional hobbyist or something along that line. I thought, oh, that's a dream. (laughs) Oh,
0: you need to check out his Twitter feed, too, because I just retweeted something earlier. It was so great. He's just, you know, comedians and people who are funny, always using their Twitter to get their material out. But he tweeted something today. Uh, I wonder how many babies are going to be named Purell during this year.
2: (laughs) Oh, God! And as someone
0: who's... um, Kind of a little bit. I'm not, I'm not a germaphobe. I'm looking at Lupe over there who's doing some editing. Uh, Lupe just joined the Bear Maker team. And he's like tried to high five me four times today. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not high fiving anymore, bro. <laughs> I'm elbow bumping now.
2: But you went for a hug.
0: I'm hugging because that's not like skin to skin. Hugging is like shirt to shirt.
2: Yeah, but germs live on clothes. I'm oh, sorry, I should really? have told you that. I
0: don't know. I feel more comfortable to- doing germs on clothes than germs on skin. So we need
2: to get you a bubble.
0: <laughs> so I do. I've got look. I got my hand sanitizer on my on my desk right here, and I'm happily living the purell life. So Henry, Alfred, we <laughs> are here for your humor.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was just thinking you're following right the official. There. The official advice of the president to use Purell and not to touch railings and you should be fine.
0: Wait, what? I didn't hear that.
2: <laughs> that was his press conference. Anyways. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, we're not, we're not, you know, we don't need to um, elevate the the office of number 45 on <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this podcast. No offense. But I guess that, I would, that wasn't
2: an elevation. <laughs> I guess I
0: would say if, you know, if he's doing any good in the world, it's to teach people to use hand sanitizer. Is that good? So there's always something positive, right? Lupe over there. We can find the positive. We were just talking about a film production that didn't go well. And Lupe said, did anything go right? And Rebecca and I were like, hmm.
2: probably <laughs> I'm sure there were.
0: It's good to look on the bright side, but we have a lot of bright side here with Irving and Henry. So we want you to enjoy episode 50 and mark your calendars because, uh, passes are on sale for the film fest may 15 to 17 and rebecca and robertino and jessica programming team is uh going to be releasing everything in about three weeks our whole program will be released wow. in three weeks so get excited about that thanks so much everybody for listening and make sure you to tweet us and insta us and share and at the very end of this podcast you're going to hear some original music created by one of our very own brave makers neil and we'll put all his information in the show notes so you can follow his album is called monopoly cool. nice all right anything else
2: no thanks for keep thanks for listening and keeping with us
1: <laughs> just, i'm a little out of it just thanks <laughs> thanks <laughs> attention filmmakers brave maker screens films every month and we host an annual film festival submit your short films and features narrative and documentaries on filmfreeway.com slash brave maker film fest to be considered brave stories brave makers and brave conversations join us for our next monthly film screening and panel discussion tickets are available at Bravemaker.com. brave stories change the world you are the story now back to the show hi everyone welcome
3: to this week's Episode of the BraveMaker podcast. I'm really excited about our guest today. He's a friend and just all around amazing person. Um, I'm very delighted to introduce the one and only Henry Alfred. Uh, quick bio about him: uh, He is a humorist and journalist who writes for the New Yorker, the New York Times, and Vanity Fair. His stories have also appeared in Spy Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Vogue, The Village Voice. McSweeney's, Harper's, Los Angeles Times, and the Paris Review. He is also the author of five books, including How to Live, which won the James Serber Prize for American Humor, and his most recent, And Then We Danced. Henry, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited about our conversation. I know we've uh, talked offline and you know, about a whole bunch of things, but I'm really excited about this conversation because, you know, we get this chance to explore your professional career and all that. But I figured, you know, one place we could start is your love for dancing. Um, in fact, you wrote an entire book about it. Uh, you know, most writers I know are not really into dancing or any kind of physical movement, uh, for that matter. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's tell, tell us how you got started with dancing.
4: It, w- it was as big a surprise to me as as it would be to you. Um Well, let's see. It it started like eight years ago. I was writing a lot for The Times, which is a very stressful experience because The New York Times, unlike magazines, which is what I have more experience um, writing for, does not have fact checkers. So if you write a story for the New York Times, you the writer are responsible for making sure every single thing is spelled correctly and that all the facts are accurate. Um, So that's an added responsibility. I was super stressed out one week um, and I found myself one night after dinner traipsing off into the living room and just putting on some Beyonce and just (laughs) shaking it, baby. (laughs) Um, And that uh, I kept doing it over a period of a couple of months. And then a friend of mine, I was having lunch with a friend and she said, well, you know, there are other people who also have this problem of yours and they sometimes get together and they do it together they do it outside (laughs) of the home um so yeah so that got me outside of the house to a class and then once I started doing that I realized wow this is a whole crazy subculture with some really fascinating characters and yeah that's when I decided I started thinking about writing a book
3: OK, so it's quite the leap, I think, to get into uh, sort of this physical hobby and then to launch that into a book. I mean, there's a very big leap, I think, in terms of, you know, experiencing it and then writing. about. It. how did you how do you decide, I guess? I mean, obviously, you've written a lot of books. but How do you decide, I guess, in the context of dance, whether a subject warrants a book? Like what was your kind of mental framework uh, as you were thinking about writing a book for that?
4: I think because I realized there were f- at least four or five things that I was really excited about um, undertaking. Uh, right <clears throat> when the the idea for the books that are coming about, I also was doing volunteer work with uh, um, Alzheimer's patients. And so these are people at a senior center, and I would go up there on Friday afternoon and dance with them. And that was fascinating, and that was a really different experience from what I was doing Tuesday nights where I was going to – A dance studio with many people, some of whom presumably had been smoking or drinking or what have you. And were just letting it fly to crazy rock music in this form of of dancing called ecstatic dancing, where you're meant to just kind of completely let loose. Uh, So that was a second whole world. Then there's the whole world of um, my enjoying going to see ballet being performed, which came very late to me. I mean, as a kid, you know, I thought that the reason why ballet dancers walked on their tiptoes was so they wouldn't wake the audience. Um, So, you know, there were three totally different worlds, and those are only three of, like, 20 that I could, you know, go into.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean... I don't know, obviously, much about dancing, but I mean, I think one of the cool things about it is I think this whole idea, right, where it's like a very physical experience, you tend to lose your sense of self in a way. When you first started doing it, I mean, to write something, obviously, about dancing, I know you go into the history of it, but how did you, I guess, take your own voice, like your own unique humorous voice and perspective and – overlay that onto a subject that is so immersive like did you feel like this was a subject that oh maybe i can be funny with or how did you approach the balance between i guess you know telling a truthful representation of your own experience versus like writing jokes or what's funny
4: um i'm trying to think well what really helped was when the editor and i sat down and thought of essentially nine categories and nine things that dance could do so that um you know uh, I had written a story for the times about um, taking a zumba class for instance so that's a you know a workaday sweaty experience um, that was real it that was very easy for me to um, apply my voice to because 'Cause a lot of my stories are sort of fish out of water and that fish was flapping on flapping <laughs> on the land. What can I tell you? No, and that was one of the surprises that that I unearthed was that you know doing Zumba is really that's as physically arduous as ballet Um, and there are no breaks in a Zumba class. You're, you know, for one hour you're boom, 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 going, going, going. Whereas with ballet, you know, you do something intense for 20 seconds and then you have a nice little break.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe one day I'll do ballet. I've always wanted to, I think it's a very interesting thing. I think I'll probably end up hurting myself in the first two minutes, (laughs) but uh, props to you for, you know, you know, putting yourself out there and going to these classes. I I wanted to touch upon this through line, I think, that I've noticed in your work. And dancing, obviously, is one of the genres. But, you know, I think I may have told this to you on a different occasion, but, you know, your writing, your approach to writing is sort of like, you know, hunter s thompson except without the drugs you know you i think some people have described your writing on the internet as sort of like this gonzo style journalism where you know you really put yourself like you immerse yourself in these lived situations where you experience it i mean one of your books you talk about how you tried to become a professional actor and I think someone described it as sort of, you know, Henry does a really good job of in the art of self-humiliation. <laughs> and, and I just think it's so cool how in a lot of your work for, you know, magazine pieces, for the Times and your books, you, you put yourself in these experiences and you really live them for months, if not years at a time. What, I guess, initially set you on this path to like approach your writing from the style. This is very, you know, it requires a lot of investment. Was this something you always knew you want to do or you sort of, found this spark in some instance where like, hey, I can, you know, really live this experience and write about it.
4: Um, well, I didn't always want to be a writer. As a kid, I was really into theater. So in a weird way, I I can sort of see this kind of the kind of writing I do as an extension of that, because it is sort of like doing comedy improv in a way. Um, and then also, there's this element of, to me, the essence of a good assignment is that it gets me out of the house. Um, that's, that's really what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a change of pace. I'm looking for a world that I don't know, but I'm interested in. And, um, so yeah, I think part of it is it's just that I'm a little, uh, not that I was bored, but just that, I, but I'm, I'm a bit of a, uh, of an experienced junkie. You know, if I have, if I've never done something before, I got to try it. If only to, um, later reject it. Um, and yes, the theme of, of, you know, the sort of r- the ritualistic, c- act of humiliation. That is something that reviewers bring up when they, um, review my books. That is entirely, uh, it's not something that I aim for, but something that I, that I am really conscious of is that I want it to be a level playing field when I write about someone. And I, I realize that it's so essentially uh, rigged at, towards my favor, this idea that usually I'm undercover, I'm entering a new situation, no one knows I'm writing about them. And, um, yeah, you know, sometimes I've even thought about the situation. I may have even thought of a couple of amusing things to say. Um, and, again, that's really it's sort of unfair that, it, that, that the, the deck is really stacked, And so therefore, I feel like it's really incumbent upon me to um, be as kind and as self-deprecating as possible. Um, because for me as a reader, when I read other people who, who, who do first-person journalism Yeah, that that's that's a big question for me is, you know, is this person just entering this world to make a lot of snotty comments about it? Um, And I don't want to be that person. And yeah, so so I think that's partly what's what's animating that aspect of of the stories.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think. myself after you know reading uh, a a lot of your stuff i can definitely detect this note of you know kindness and i think thoughtfulness and how you impart onto the subjects you're writing and i think i think one it takes a lot of discipline to do that but two i mean knowing you i mean it's so in your voice right i mean it is so henry Alfred in a way and i think that's great that you've remained so honest i think to your own voice one thing I'm, i'm curious about is you know obviously you've done a lot of this first person journalism into a varying you know degree of subjects how do you? I know you talked about, you know, just wanting to get out of the house and so forth, but how do you pick, I guess, a subject that is worth, I guess, your time and first person experience? Because I mean, there's an infinite amount of things you can do, but how do you pick which one you think could be worthy, potentially, of a story?
4: Well, you know, depending on how long the piece is, um, You know, the longer it is, the the more it needs to change you, uh, the more the experience needs to change you. So something that might be funny at 800 or 500 or 400 words length, um, it's just sort of a larky, you know, throwaway thing. That's totally fine. But if you're going to stick with someone over the course of a book, that writer better really be invested in it I think you know otherwise why are they doing it so you know I'm uh, I uh, I sort of bridle at the at the phrase stunt journalist but yeah there is a kind of stunt journalism that um I'm not really interested in so yeah so I I think I need to be genuinely interested in it um I just I just read an interview with Judd Apatow actually where he made the point that a good comedy, it, if you remove all the jokes from your script or or article, it needs to still work as a story without the without the funny, um, and that's a really powerful point of view I think because. Yeah, in that same way, either the narrative of what I'm undertaking needs to work on its own without the jokes or and or um, that the reader needs to learn stuff that that is interesting. You know, if it's just um, there's there's some milieus or some situations that are, yes, genuinely funny, but we're not learning anything that that's, that's interesting. And again, that's the kind of thing that would work for a very short piece, but not for a feature, let alone
3: a book. Right. Right. So when you think about the different kinds of subjects, you could, you know, do the whole first person journalism with, you know, when you pitch these, um, do you have any, I guess, tips and tricks or any advice for like, writers who want to position themselves in very similar career tracks as you, where they want to do a lot of this stuff. I mean, do you have any best practices or any recommendations for like how they want to pitch these kinds of stories? Like what has worked for you or what hasn't worked in the past
4: for when you're p- pitching them to editors? You mean, right. Um, well, I mean, the, the thing with journalism is it always, it, it has to be topical. So ideally this um, this year that you're entering is is something that people are talking about uh, you know like this book Uncanny Valley that that is out now that's very of the moment because people are fascinated to to know about startups that we had that whole bubble of, of tech stuff and no one really had given us the the worm's eye view of it before. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be in the news or, or sort of in the national conversation. I think we need to be learning stuff. That's, that's going to be interesting. And yeah, there's going to be uh, what I always look for is the writer's investment. You know, I want to know that this writer is writing about this topic, not because they were offered a lot of money for a book deal, but because yeah there's just something personal at stake. So yeah, I think that if you know writers were were pitching this kind of stuff, I would I would think those three things uh, uh, topicality, here's some cool stuff you're gonna learn, here's my own personal investment and and why I'm writing
3: about it. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, clear and helpful framework. I mean I've personally been interested in thinking about, what kind of things I would like to write in that sort of sphere. As you know, I don't really do that. But I think this advice, I mean, it's a super helpful. And I think oftentimes, you know, I get so caught up in, oh, how can I make this funny? Whereas I sometimes forget to think about like, for example, the audience or like, why is this important, especially when it comes to journalism. So um, I'm definitely going to uh, write down this advice and, and uh, <laughs> honor it myself. And when I, when I try to, so this question was certainly asked out of selfish motivation. Um, well, no, one thing- it
4: comes, it, and it comes up all the time is that people will say to me, my net, you know, I went kayaking with my nephew on the Delaware water gap and we had the most fabulous afternoon and I've written up a 2000 word article. Who can I send it to? And so I'll say to them, did you, did you kayak on a new part of the Delaware water gap? Did you kayak in a, in a new kayak? Is it a new kind of, you know, is it, is it powered by um, vegetable peels that have been (laughs) rotting or, you know, just what's the news angle? Because what I'm hearing from what I'm hearing, you had a lovely afternoon with your nephew but, <laughs> but why would any why would any publication be interested in it if again if there's not some little newsy bit to it so they always say no no nope, no nope, no nope, none of those old old kayak the you know this river's been open for years blah, blah, blah. and then I'll say okay well not to pry but let's talk about your nephew. Is there something interesting about him? You know, because if you're, if we're talking about a kid with, you know, special needs, or you know, if there's something there, uh, some something about that kid that is gonna make this uh, this piece you're talking about more specific. Then, yeah, that's a possible. Um, selling angle. And generally, no, the nephew is a a nice, totally normal kid. Um, So, yeah, then you're kind of running out of options. Um, So, yeah. So I think I always encourage people to, um, you know, think about all those those three points we just talked about. Think about those first, and and see if you can answer the if you can tick those boxes, and and that's just going to make your life easier.
3: Yeah, that's definitely uh, incredibly useful advice. I mean, just hearing that example, I think, clarifies so much in the process. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I think just people in general can get so myopic about our own experiences. Like we feel like we're the center of the world and, you know, maybe every single day is so interesting, but is it really interesting for a story to be written and to be read by potentially millions of people? And that's, that's a much harder, I think, question to answer, but I think, yeah, nailing down specifics is incredibly important. Um, on the note of specifics actually I wanted to switch gears a bit, uh, into the realm of humor writing. Um, because as I know, you know, in humor writing, uh, the more specific something is, the funnier it can be. When you started writing humor, uh, was there an element of how do I balance or how do I really switch my mindsets between like writing journalism and humor, or was it a very seamless, I guess, mental recalibration? I mean, was it was it an easy thing for you, or did what, did it take some time to kind of learn the art of humor writing for yourself?
4: Um, I got a lot of help. I I was fortunate enough er, very early on to hook up with a no longer uh, in existence magazine called Spy, which was a satirical magazine, but that was, you know, that had fact checkers and and real journalists working for it. So it was a, you know, essentially a news magazine, but told with a very um, kind of witty, you know, in a a witty voice. So that kind of stuff, you know, being amusing about actual things, yeah, that seemed pretty. E- that that didn't take a lot of um, of uh, adjusting. What's harder for me, and I think for most people, is what I would call literary humor, like shouts and murmurs. So, so an art, so a thing that has no facts to it, where you're just riffing uh, on some conjectural. Um, premise. And yeah, that does take a bit of a shift because I think unless you're someone who sits around and reads novels all day long, most of us come into contact with, you know, with much more sort of amusing journalism than they do with amusing fiction. And yeah, and, and, and fiction is, is, is a slightly different beast, I think, and, and it's, um, it doesn't come as readily to me, and uh, it's never first thought, best thought, it's usually like 37th thought, best thought, <laughs> uh, so as you know, you're writing a novel.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, definitely feels very weird for sure. I mean, it's just, uh, if anything, I I regret starting it. I think that's what I'll probably say. But it's been very, It's been. I mean, for sure, it's definitely been very interesting thinking about, you know, the atomic unit of the joke. And I mean, I think your Judd Apatow story is incredibly uh, true. I mean, as I'm thinking about, you know, even risk writing longer pieces, right? I mean, you can't, I don't think you can just sustain something with just purely just jokes. Otherwise it's just what's like the emotional through line. Right. And I think some of the, in my opinion, some of the funniest shouts and murmurs pieces in the New Yorker that I've read were ones that actually have a very clear narrative to it. Right. There's like either a protagonist or an antagonist, what have you. And there's like a sort of geometry, I think, to the story that adds this level of cohesion. Um, and I think, I think, you know, it's like if you remove the jokes, do you still have a story? Even if it's not funny, do you still have a story? And I think I'd argue that, yeah, in a lot of these Shouts and Rumors pieces that I really like, yeah, there is a story to it. You know, it's usually one of, I think, self humiliation, very similar. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and at least certainly the stuff I think I've written uh, fall into that camp of self-humiliation um,
4: yeah no well, so, usually there's a beginning a middle and an end of some kind you know it, it, whether it's thematic or or you know actual um narrative um and uh yes i'm sorry go ahead
3: yeah so i i wanted to ask about you know more specifically on the humor side like when you come up with an idea you know and i think this can be applied to a lot of creative storytelling not just comedic but you know what is sort of like your mental decision process or kind of running through the gamut of okay i have this really you know uh kind of semi-formed idea how do i validate whether or not it's worthy of potentially a shots and murmurs piece or maybe even a comedy sketch or maybe even a one-act play like how do you henry alford like how do you run through whether or not something warrants like, oh, this has this idea has legs, if you, if you know what I mean.
4: I have a couple of things I do. One thing I do now after many years of writing humor pieces and then not being able to find someone to sell it to is I think, okay, I have this great idea that I'm gonna send to the New Yorker. If they don't take it, is it something I would send someplace else? can I think of a second place that would be interested in this idea? And if I can't, uh, I'm probably not going to pursue it. Um, Then once I have that, the next thing I do usually is I'll just pull out a, a legal pad and just play with it for a day. And it's usually not a whole day. It's usually a couple of hours one morning and Yeah. If I don't see something after like two hours, if I don't see a couple of uh, either jokes or ideas or strains of thought that are intriguing, that's another, you know, that's another warning sign. Um, So another thing that I read once that was very helpful was. Someone talking about writing sketch comedy, and they said, "You know, all sketch writing is the same. You introduce the game, you play the game, and then you get out." So that applies really to shouts and murmurs. That that you have a that you have some kind of a comic game or conceit or premise or what you know whatever you want to call it that you've got to set up quickly, then. You have as much fun with that game as you can, and then you've got to figure out an end. The end is really important. You know, the end. Sometimes the end can kill you. Um, the the novelist John Irving sometimes writes his last chapter first, um, and I have done that with uh, with shouts and murmurs. I have written the last paragraph because. As soon as you have that, then you realize, oh, well, working backwards, I've got to get to here by midpoint. And then, oh, OK. And then I need to get to this point even faster. And there, you know, and it just um, uh, some people say the opposite. Joan Didion, I've, I've read an interview with her where she she frets and frets and frets and frets and, frets and labors and labors and sweats and sweats over. The first sentence, because for her, she says, you know, once, once I have the first sentence, then the piece is written. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think more about the I think the ending that, that I want to know where it's going to land and then work backwards. That's that's really helpful for me.
3: Yeah, I guess you're more of a John Irving, and I'm more of a Joan Didion. I guess uh, <laughs> I guess this there's no way to reconcile this uh, friendship. That at the end of the day, I just have to call it quits. Um, yeah, I, I, it is really interesting to hear about different writers' process, you know. And I think sometimes I wonder if it's just a byproduct of you know just how they're wired, or just you know, what comes easier to them. I mean, there could be a whole you know variety of reasons. But yeah, it's been, especially in the realm of humor. You know, I think I recently watched a stand-up special, uh, Dave Chappelle's stand-up special. And he says that he just every day just comes up with, Random punchlines. He doesn't even have the setup. He just has the perfectly formed punchline. <laughs> and he writes them on a slip of paper and puts them into like a fishbowl or whatever. And he'll just sometimes pull one out randomly and say, Oh, I guess I'm gonna write a joke for this. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I I think I believe it. But it is interesting how some people think from the end and some people think from the beginning. And I wonder if there are people out there who just think in the middle, which I'm sure that would be very, very nauseating. I think so. Well, in Tina
4: Fey's book, she's, she has this whole thing about how there are two types of sketch writers, that they're the um, the premise people, which skews a little bit more male, and those are the people who have these, um, you know, they tend to go for um, historical pastiche you know they love to like do a 1920s barber shop where people are wearing barrels on suspenders (laughs) and come to our old timey you, you know that kind of thing um and then the other kind are the people who really are are obsessed with characters and so they've got these fun characters and they're just trying to plug those characters into a situation and, and Tina Fey writes that, you know, those people invariably um, gravitate towards sketches about um, um, uh, beauty parlors or, or prostitutes and it's people screaming and yelling, you kiss your mother with that face, uh, <laughs> that, you know, that kind of, um, and, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's every kind of different approach. And I don't think you need to, you know, hang out with only people who write the way that you write. But I think knowing that there are other people who approach a comic premise the same way that you do, it it, o- it only, you know, makes your, your case
3: stronger. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, you know, on the, on the note of, you know, the you know, joke writing, all that. One of the things that I really admire about your writing is that you're, you know, obviously you're a really great pro stylist. I mean, uh, it's very, you know, I find it very readable and accessible and just in many ways, I feel like it reflects like a natural wave of self-consciousness, I think for like how people might talk to themselves in a way. But I also really respect, um, how great of a joke writer you are. And I'm wondering, you know, we have, Uh, a lot of listeners who are actors, but also filmmakers and and screenwriters. And, uh, you know, some of them, they write, you know, serious, uh, you know, weighty sort of stories that are powerful, but I think a lot of them also want to write jokes, you know, into their uh, drama pieces. I'd be curious to kind of hear your process or, like, how you, I guess, one, write a Joke into something, and obviously, that's a very broad question. But maybe to get it down more specifically, how do you know uh, if you were to evaluate like a purely dramatic story, right? If you were to read like a script, um, so basically taking the inverse of Judd Apatow's story, a narrative without the jokes, how do you kind of evaluate different places in the script or the story where there's an opportunity for a joke?
4: That's a great question. Um, I would imagine, I mean, part of it has to do with uh, where in the story you're at. You know, it just, it seems natural uh, to have a scene be lighter if it's following the cancer reveal or you know the the deathbed confession um whereas the cancer reveal or the deathbed confession themselves it might be weird to have a different tone um so that's it's really that's really tricky but um I do love that the Dave Chappelle example I mean I think that when you're working on a, you know, a, a, either a, a book or a, or a feature-length script or a, anything that's longer than, you know, a thousand words, yeah, while you're working on it, you're going to have little things that make you chuckle that don't fit anywhere in your story, or so you think, right? I, I, I think that you're writing down those, those little observations to yourself, and then as you revise... You realize oh wait actually there is this moment where these two people are standing having an awkward conversation and this is the perfect place for someone to blurt out this line i have
3: right yeah i think that's a really good example i mean certainly uh you know it can be a bit of a tenuous stretch to introduce a joke into you know a a sort of a cancer situation for sure but I think on the note of you know once let's just say you have the joke right so let's say somebody a writer uh, tries to write a joke into a fairly you know emotionally light scene perhaps after the you know confessional on the on the deathbed Um, walk us through I guess your editing process for you know as you were saying how you know you typically don't get the joke in the first time maybe the thirty seventh time but. What are sort of the, I guess, what's the rubric you run through when you have a joke to say, Okay, what can I do to make this funnier? Are there what are the different dimensions that you consider? Like, I know rule of threes is one example in comedy, but are there others that you think are important to consider?
4: Well, I mean, there's lots of stuff with pros like, you know, put the joke at the end. Um, Don't put the joke in the middle of the sentence. Um, That's a good rule of thumb. Stacking jokes, like putting too many all at once, uh, it can take away from the earlier ones, I think. So, yeah, I think it's just a question of, um, of being really attuned to pacing and to knowing, yeah, when people are looking for it's almost like a cha- an opportunity to catch their breath, almost, while they're reading. Um, one thing that really helps, of course, is reading your stuff out loud, um, that if you're just reading it to yourself in your head, you're not necessarily going to put in the little pauses that we all put in when we read something. But as soon as you read it out loud, even to the, an empty room, Um, I think pacing becomes much more apparent and, but more, but even more dramatically, just the, um, uh, what I don't want to say credulity, but, but sort of whether the joke seems warranted. Yeah. It it becomes really evident.
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tricky. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, some people are just naturally funnier than others. Others, And I think part of it, I mean, I think people can train themselves into like understanding this. I mean, I think I forgot who said it, but you know, every writer has to first become a reader. And I think, I think learning how to write a joke, learning how to, you know, craft a joke, make it better. I think this can be totally a skill that can be learned. And, and I think taught um, to pay attention, like pace for sure, timing and yeah, I think certainly for me, I know I'm guilty of uh, wanting to layer a bunch of jokes on top of each other, mostly because I'm insecure. But uh, that <laughs> that 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 is a, a whole nother topic. I think that should probably reserve for therapy and not for this conversation. So yeah, I think those are those are really great tips. Um, one thing that caught my attention or, uh, a bit earlier that I want to dive into because I think you know you have this really fascinating process is that when you you know start writing these humor pieces you mentioned that you write by hand on a legal pad. Now I'm, I'm a millennial and I tend to do things digitally for the most part. But from your experience, have you noticed any differences between sketching or writing something out on by hand uh, versus the computer? Like what are sort of the pros and cons uh, from your experience with that?
4: I always write the first paragraph in longhand. Um, why? Because I feel like I'm much less glib as um, if I'm actually holding a pen or a pencil and writing something down. I, just because we're also used to texting or emailing, um, and so yeah, just that that little act of shifting gears and, and going back to ye old fountain pen. Um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't use a fountain pen. Um, but no, that, 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 that really helps. And then once I have the first paragraph or two, then I'm fine. Um, then, then I'm, you know, y- using the, uh, the computer, but, uh, and, you know, also, to be frank, it probably just makes it more interesting that um, a big thing um, about having written for more than 20 years is, you know, you got to keep finding ways to, to make it appealing to you, to make it new. And if that means buying purple fountain pens to write, you know, <laughs> do it. If that means writing as an act of revenge because you're so jealous of someone, do it. You know whatever <laughs> it takes. Um, because frankly, in a vacuum, who would bother? I mean, it's just it's not that it's not that fun, frankly. Or I mean, aspects of it are fun, and certainly it's fun to have written. But it, it, just the process is really um, laborious. Um, so. Yeah. So for me, going and buying like a new, uh, you know, a dozen legal pads, that's super exciting. Um, and that that keeps me in the game.
3: Yeah, I, I, it's it's so amazing how oftentimes it's the the s- smallest things in life, the most mundane that I think if we're able to change our relationship to it can lend a whole new perspective and I think meaning to, to the process. I mean, I know for sure, just recently for me, I've been a bit of a writing slog. And I think, you know, maybe even just simply changing it up, writing something on paper as simple as that could actually, you know, change or renew, I think, my sort of my vigor or my energy. And so I never thought of it that way. I think this is really, I think it's really useful advice. And um, I'll be sure to to try to do that because I think, yeah, you're right. Once you've been doing something for a long time i mean you know things start of together and i think just punctuating it with you know as mundane as it is as you know a purple fountain pen whatever it may be yeah um, no, I think it, it can, can really, yeah
4: it can really help in the same way that um you know another another thing that i found myself doing is if i have two projects I'll put them in different rooms of the house. So then you go into the other room and you cheat on the first project, you know. <laughs> uh, and then you run back to the first room and you cheat on the second. Just yeah, I mean the little the little bullshit games. They are
3: everything. Yeah, you've been definitely reading a lot of nineteenth-century British literature lately. <laughs> <How about> you <laughs> <laughs> Um. Yeah, so one of the things, too, that I, I wanted to talk to you about, because I think this is also fascinating, is that in addition to, obviously, your amazing humor writing skills and um, your ability as a journalist you know, to render truth in a very funny, lighthearted, kind, thoughtful way, you also uh, have been an interviewer. And I'm curious, like from your perspective, you know, one, I think from two angles, when you go into an interview, how do you, I guess, prepare? What's your research preparation process like? And the second part is once you've done the interview, uh, how do you approach writing it? Do you have a standard standard sort of like run book or is it always going to be different depending on the subject you're interviewing?
4: Uh, Let's see. For me, the best thing you can do is over-prepare. So read every single article about this topic. um, And then I write down all my interview questions and I essentially memorize them because you don't want to go into the interview situation and just sort of railroad the person with your questions. What's he, what's the best thing to do, particularly if yeah, if you don't know the if you don't know the subject and you you don't know what the vibe is going to be like, um, yeah, it's great to have sort of Digested all your questions so that you can put them in a different order, depending on what the the subject seems to be interested in, um, and then a thing that comes up sometimes. Uh, this may be specific to uh, writing profiles, but something that has happened to me is you know you get assigned. To write about the the filthy potty mouthed comic, and you go to the bar and you meet the comic at the at the uh, the agreed upon time and place, and he's sweet and sort of Disney esque. He's not <laughs> filthy at all. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> and. know either you can go with that and that's going to be a great story because it's you've reversed expectation and and this person who we thought was going to be one way is the opposite in real life but probably you've been sent to interview that person to try to capture that filthy potty-mouthed vibe that we all know and love in which case You know, I think that what interviewers can do that's really helpful is what you as the the interviewer do is you have to put some of you have to be the quality that you're looking for. So in this in this scenario that I'm describing, I think you start swearing, you start telling dirty jokes, you start being that, um, uh, you know, totally unhinged comic person that you know your interview is supposed to be and that will yeah that will inspire them to be that way
3: yeah it it is a it is a tricky one i think you know i can definitely see how some editors some publications would you know assign a a piece because of like what we know about the public image and then in private you know this person turns out to be completely different when you are I guess faced with this sort of um, dilemma or just this you know uh, separation of what is projected versus the reality of it when you're writing the actual piece how do you, what things do you consider in terms of the writing I mean are you beholden to the truth or are you beholden to like what the editor wants or what the publication wants how do you balance between those different competing I guess viewpoints
4: Well, it's tricky. I mean, if you did have that experience where you went out to try to interview someone and they were completely not what you were anticipating, you would probably write your editor and say, hey, you know, this was much different than we anticipated. What do you want me to do? Um, And. Yeah, no, that's always, it's always a tricky line, particularly, you know, if the public, if it was, if the story idea was the the publications, yeah, they're probably looking for a really specific thing. So then it's just a question of you going back and forth with the editor, maybe re-interviewing the subject until, yeah, you find some kind of happy medium
3: Right. Right. So on that note, uh, we can certainly link to this in the, in the show notes. But do you have any examples of uh, interviews that you haven't done, but inter- other interviews, uh, written out interviews, whether it's in Vanity Fair or GQ or The New Yorker or anywhere else that you see as, you know, really great examples of like a really great profile or interview that was that was done?
4: Um, I'm trying to think. Think my friend David Camp wrote one about um, Bruce Springsteen in Vanity Fair that I thought was really terrific. Um, yeah, I, I think there there are lots of great um, profiles out there.
3: Um, so, what do you think made that particular Bruce Springsteen profile uh, effective? Not just as a story, but you know, as illuminating. Like, what do you think were the I guess, ingredients that I think David captured, in your opinion, that made this wow, this was a really great profile. What do you think he did well in, in that regard?
4: Well, I'm, I'm a sucker for anything about fathers and sons, I guess, because I didn't really know my father. So um, there was a poignancy that I wasn't expecting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the celebrity profile is a really is a specific kind of beast, but yeah, I think the ones that that catch me unawares or, or the, that interest me are ones either that sort of surprise me with some sort of very basic humanity at the center of them, or I like ones that are sort of literary, by which I mean ones where the writer is positing the subject as an archetype or as an example of something. So it's not just, you know, Bruce Ringstein does his own laundry and he has 15 guitars in his living, you know, blah, blah, blah. We know all that stuff. Um, but if you can say, you know, he's the voice of America for the certain kind of person, and and you can back that up with specific examples. Then, yeah, to me, that that is going to lift up a profile.
3: Yeah, I I definitely uh, am, am a sucker for for those kinds of things as well. Certainly, father son relationships, but I think. I think the profiles that I've read and certainly to your point are the ones that yeah there's there is like this humanity in terms of relatability right like obviously a lot of these celebrities larger than life uh, mythological sort of you know figures but you know I think where these profiles that I found that are really well done are the ones that yeah like wow they went through this particular experience and they also sometimes get up late in the morning and, you know, down donuts sometimes, you know, like they're, they're also very imperfect. And I think, you know, it's, uh, those are very, I think, humbling to read. And it's like, wow, they're obviously they're human, but like to actually read it and, and have, you know, this relatability, I think that's incredibly powerful. So yeah, I think definitely agree. I think on that point, um, now, Henry, I want to be sensitive to your times. I know uh, we don't have much of it, but uh, one, one last question, I think, for our listeners who you know, want to you know, get more into journalism, want to become more of a journalist, or maybe even pursue more of like the first-person, perhaps humorous angle to, to the journalist writing. Do you have any sort of parting advice or words of wisdom that, that you want to give them?
4: I think the mistake that most beginning writers make... And and here I'm talking about journalists or or people who are writing for, for publications as opposed to fiction writers. So I think the mistake that most journalists make is they write a story and then they go to the newsstand and they think, who could I sell this to? This was certainly my experience writing, you know, hu- humor early on. I would write something up, go to the newsstand, and I would look at all the magazines and think, okay, who who does stuff like this? Who can I mail it to? I would recommend doing precisely the opposite, which is to say, don't start with your your great kooky idea. Start with the publications. Find a publication that is A, that you really like, and B, that is using freelance writers. Um, It might be the op-ed page of your local newspaper. It might be the first-person column in, uh, like Newsweek used to have a first-person column. The New York Times Magazine used to have one. Um, It might be sort of the front section of a city magazine like New York or Los Angeles um, where they do, yeah, sort of short um, things from a a lot of different writers. Whatever it is, find that publication, read it, read it, read it, read it, month month after month after month after month, figure out what the house style is, figure out what they're interested in, figure out what they're doing and then Think of an, you know, think of an, ta- excuse me, tailor an idea very specifically to that publication and try writing those. Um, and you're much more likely to get published that way than you are the, the former way. Yeah, I
3: think I, I definitely need to hear that advice for sure because I think, yeah, a lot of times, certainly you know, the millennial generation, we can get impatient with, you know, we just want to get something out there. And I I totally can empathize with that. But I think your approach, you know, just being patient, really understanding, I think, you know, yields a lot of mileage in the long run. So yeah, I think that's great advice. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Before we uh, take off, Henry, where can people find you on social media and so forth?
4: Uh, I'm on Twitter. Just, it's my whole name. Uh, I think that's the only one I do. I'm not, I just, I'm not good looking enough for Instagram Um, (laughs) and Facebook. I, I, yeah, I only friend people who I've met. So, so let's
3: meet on Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. sounds great we'll have a link to uh henry's twitter and uh we'll have a link to obviously his website and, and some of his works and and his books obviously um but with that being said uh henry thank you so much for for being on the show it's such a pleasure to talk and i learned so much and uh it was great just chatting with you about your professional career
1: hey thanks so much for having me all right until next time guys take care thanks for listening to the brave maker podcast subscribe give us a rating and share with a friend Want to be social? Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bravemaker Inc. Bravemaker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax deductible donation at bravemaker.com.
0: This is Tony Gap of Stone chiming in let you know you're listening to Beats made by Neil Swaney. You can find him in the show notes. Instagram at Swaney Beats.
4: Dude, fucked up your past Used to do Xanax so I could relax Used to dreams, but that's in the past PTSD but you know I can't stop with that I don't wanna fall but you know I can't turn back Let myself on that shit relapse
1: Hey, hey, Why you be doubting shit? Let me be proud of it That ain't that wishing, shit That shit be the heart again Take it way back to when we wasn't having shit Now look what we started man Now I be giving any nigga the verses like man. If you got something to say Then fuck it, say it, thing
3: I'm gonna make this dream come true Never, ever let this shit fall through I'm with the crew in the stew you know we making moves. Ooh, we ain't got nothing to prove. Never lost sight. I'ma take black, achieve
2: new heights. Yeah, I just might take this little cutie out tonight. I believe in me.
1: Brave stories change the world. You are the story.